But the question tonight is, what makes Good Friday good? What makes blood good? What makes agony good? What makes suffering good? You take people who do horrendous things, like bomb airports in Brussels or fly planes into towers or blow up theaters in Paris. And truth be known or told, we don't get too upset when those folks are punished even with death. For we reason, and I think rightly so, some might disagree with me, that, well, others will not be the target of their horrendous acts. But what makes this good? What makes an innocent man who was not guilty and his suffering good? What's good about this? And as we think about our Savior's life, and you just journey through it the last week, we call this Holy Week, the last few days, uh, scholars debate about the chronology of time, but between the upper room and his crucifixion, maybe three, four days, what happened during that time? What took place? From a human perspective, we see the unraveling of a life. We see a man, Jesus, three and a half years, who was at the pinnacle of popularity, who had healed people, raised folks from the dead, spoke to thousands of people, folks clamoring after him. In the last few months of his life, people withdrawing from him. He's isolated. He's in this upper room all by himself. And if you just read Matthew chapter 26 and 27, you get a feeling of, of, a, of a life that's coming apart. Praise with his disciples in the upper room and they celebrate Passover together. He departs from the upper room and he goes to the garden and there he prays this excruciating prayer. It's, it, it, we're, just, we're just like eyewitnesses as we read this thing. The pain and agony that he went through and he took Peter, James and John with him and said, could you not just watch with me? They fell asleep. He was all by himself. Realizing the loneliness of the cross and the excruciating price that he'd have to pay. But he wins that battle in prayer. He does. He resigns in his humanity to the will of the Father to die on the cross, to suffer, bleed, and die. And he goes back to his disciples one last time, Peter, James, and John. He says, okay, uh, you better sleep later because these guys are coming for me right now. And as they turn around, here's this great entourage, this army led by the high priest and, and a bunch of folks and dignitaries and religious leaders. And uh, they come to get him and they brought this cohort of soldiers with all these, these swords and everything else. And, and at the head of the line was Judas. Judas comes up to Jesus, the man who had loved him. He had hung out with him for three and a half years. He had heard every word of the Sermon on the Mount. 
saw the miracles, was in the boat when he said, peace be still. For 30 pieces of silver, he betrayed him. And he walks up to Jesus, and there Jesus is with his disciples, and he walks up to Jesus, and he kisses him on the cheek. And he leaves. Probably Peter checking out what was happening here. Gets ticked and pulls a sword and swings. And I believe he meant to cut off the head, but Peter was a fisherman and not a fighter. And he missed him and hit his ear, and Jesus heals his ear. He says, don't, don't do that, Peter. Now, can you imagine... Here you have the disciples standing there. Um, all these folks are here to arrest Jesus. These are the high priests. These are the religious leaders. These are the folks. And the disciples are running scared. They don't know what in the world to do. And, and you have this frightening verse, this terrible verse in Matthew 26. It says that all of the disciples left him. Can you imagine? So what's good about Good Friday? Jesus is left alone. So what do they do? They bring him to Caiaphas, the high priest. And Caiaphas is, 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 you know, these dudes were diabolical. These religious leaders, they cared nothing about the liberation of people. Only thing they cared about was the religious control and manipulating the people. And Jesus had kind of carved in their market share. And they didn't like that at all. They got to get rid of him. And so Matthew records that they, they, they lie. And they get these trumped up charges accusing Jesus of, of some type of thing that he didn't do. But a savior had won the battle in the garden, and so he doesn't even dialogue with them. They accuse him. Things are closing in. Peter had been following from a distance and knew where they had him, but he didn't want to be so associated with him because it all dawned on him that, hey, if they're going to kill Jesus, they could kill us too. One old servant girl looks and says, you know, you know, you, yeah, you, yeah, you look like one of the ones who hung out with the, the Galilean, Jesus. Peter denounces him, begins to curse. No, 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 I don't even know him. How could you do that, Peter? took you on the Mount of Transfiguration. You just celebrated the first Lord's Supper with me. I put you in the garden. You don't know me? Well, from that moment, they move on. Caiaphas was a smart man. He realized that his hands were tied, and these were all trumped-up charges, and as much as they wanted to kill Jesus and have him crucified, he did not have the power to do that. Only the Roman governor, Pilate, could pull that off. So what does he do? He goes with the Pilate. Again, these trumped-up charges accusing him of insurrection and all of these things that had nothing to do with fact. 
And Pilate chooses to ignore Jesus. He didn't want to get into this little political thing with the, with the Jews and this kind of thing and it's whatever. And he says, look, um, 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 I got to appease you. I got to wash my hands of this because I don't want to be involved in this. They convince him. You say, okay, well, well, what are you going to do? Well, during the, he had a choice at a feast. He says, whatever the people say, I'll do. We're going to release a prisoner. They release Jesus. It's up to you. I'm rolling the dice. He says, no. And they release this notorious criminal, Barabbas. At this point, our Savior's feet is doomed. They officially charge him. And all the while, Jesus says nothing. They bring Jesus to the barracks where a battalion of Roman soldiers are. And they make this crown of thorns about like that, two and a half inches long, mocking him, smashing it on his head. Matthew records that they they spit on him. They pull his beard, pull out his hair. Hey, king of Jews, tell us who just hit you. So I ask you, what's so good about Good Friday? Parentheses here. What you must understand is this. The power of Jesus is found in his submission. He could have called 10,000 angels down. He could have stopped it at any given moment. That's what he said in John chapter 10. He says, oh, you, you need to know something. I'm the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to bring it up again. And this is, this is something that we don't often talk about when we talk about Calvary. We, we view Jesus as if he was passive in his death. He was not passive in his death. There's no passivity about Jesus. He was actively surrendered to his treatment. And that's the power of the cross. He yielded. He yielded. So they take him and they crucify him. What we need to know about crucifixion, and I don't want to get into all of this, but the very nature of crucifixion was to be uh, two things. It was to make you suffer over a long period of time. The reason why they crucified you with your arms out like this uh, there's the, the, the word, uh, when they, we translated hands, but that word translated hands could mean anything from your forearm down here, and Jesus' nails were probably not in the palm of his hand, it was in his wrists. They drove the nails in his wrists, and they, they, they brought your knees up just a little bit here and drove the nails, the big spikes through your feet, so that as you breathe, you had to go, ah, you had to lift yourself up. Lift yourself up. They did that on purpose. And, and if you were crucified, I mean, you could, you, could, you could last for two and a half to three days. 
And the other thing, unfortunately, the rendition of crucifixion is not really accurate. Uh, usually there's a loincloth that we see around Jesus or someone, pictures of people who have been crucified. There was no loincloth there. The purpose of crucifixion was public humiliation. Jesus did not have a stitch of clothes on. And I won't tell you what some of the other things that the Romans used to do to torture you while you were being crucified. And the reason why they would come by and break the legs is that if they had to expedite crucifixion, they want a person, a person to die quickly, they break the legs so he couldn't lift himself up, and you died of asphyxiation. So again, the question is, what is so good about Good Friday? i tell you what's good about it. All of that was necessary to pay the price for that lie you told. All of that was necessary to pay the price of that lustful thought. All of that was necessary to pay the price for our separation from God. And Jesus knew that before the foundations of the world, he had to be crucified. He was a perfect sacrifice. He had to submit himself to the will of the Father so that, as I said Sunday morning, all of the righteous demands of God on sin was poured out on our Savior. Every sin that had ever been committed. And so there are two grand statements. Luke captures it, and it's the only gospel that has it. But, but when, when Jesus says, even to his captors, even to those who are crucifying him, even to those who are mocking him, even to those who pulled his hair out, even to those who spat on him, even to those that drove the spikes in his hands and in his feet, he said, Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. What makes Good Friday good is that's when, that's when the severe, astonishing, amazing suffering of our Savior converged with the forgiveness of the world. And he did that for you, and he did that for me. And so when he uttered those words in John chapter 19, verse 30, when he says, it is finished. It is finished. He wasn't talking about the expiration of his life. What he was talking about was the reason why he came. All of the IOUs of history, all of the delayed judgment upon us, all of the inadequate systems that could not satisfy the righteous and holy demands of God on sin, all of those times that the priests would take up goats and lambs to the altar and on the Day of Atonement and sprinkle the blood on the altar and drive the lamb into the wilderness, symbolizing that for another year the sins of Israel had been driven from the nation. All of those IOUs that have been banked up, no more bulls, no more goats, no more lambs, for the Lamb of God has taken away the sins of the world. That's what makes Good Friday good. Paul put it this way in Colossians 2, that he took all of our sins and nailed them to the cross. To the cross. If you know Jesus tonight, 
We have been freed forever. 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 One of the things that tears me up about Christians and about my own walk with God is that we so quickly wander away from the power of what took place here. We get so distracted with the secondary issues in our lives and these, all these other things that we lose the passion and the amazing sense of gratitude that should grip our souls over what's been secured for us. There's a danger of being a Christian in the United States of America. For our cultural Christianity kind of rebrands Calvary and rebrands the cross and puts our lifestyle on it. And Calvary becomes another bullet in our narcissistic arsenal rather than the place at which we come and we surrender. Where we live under the shadow of this cross forever. And we say, Lord Jesus, thank you. We're going to transition into communion now. When Jesus gathered his disciples together in that upper room, And he got on his feet and he washed their feet to serve them. The very washing of their feet was symbolic of what he was going to do on Calvary. That his death would be the pathway of serving them and giving them the gift of eternal life. That he would die for them and die for us in our place and for our sin. Luke puts it this way in his rendition of that moving scene in the upper room as Jesus flips the script and changes the Passover to now the Lord's Supper. Luke records, he looks around and he sees these men that he'd been with. From a human perspective, all that he has. He says, I've earnestly desired to eat this meal with you. I'm not going to do this again. Then he takes the bread. And he says from now on, what this bread represents is my body broken for you. And for, from, 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 from now on, forever, every time you partake of this bread, you remember my body broken for you. Then he lifted up the cup. He said, this cup now represents my blood, which is shed for you. And every time you partake of this cup, you remember, you remember 
you remember, you remember me. Now listen, I just woefully, inadequately, lightly summarize Calvary. It is fitting for every believer every time we take communion to remember the humiliation of our Savior and to remember that God the Father turned his back on him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because your sins and my sins were placed upon him. And he had to be humiliated, beaten, broken to pay that price. As Tim said, this has also become a highlight for me. We're going to celebrate communion now. And what we would like to do in a few moments is for those of us who can, if you have families, we would encourage you to do this together as a family, as couples, to come and, and kneel here. I'm going to ask the men to come at this point. And uh, there's communion would be down here, and we can serve each other as family members. We want to take our time this evening. We don't want to rush this. We want to remember the Lord Jesus with what he's done. Perhaps uh, it'll be crowded here. Um, that's okay. We can wait. If you can't kneel, we have tables up in the balcony and tables off here where there are the elements. And we'd like for you to take your time and to celebrate. But let me, let me share this with you. Communion is about the solution to our sin. And the Apostle Paul gave a sobering warning that we should never come to this table with unconfessed sin in our hearts and lives. This is serious business. So I'm going to ask us just for a moment to bow our heads together and let's look within our own hearts. If there's anything that the Lord brings to mind that we have said or done, attitudes that we have, unfinished business, let's make that right with the Lord. Let's make it right with him before we celebrate Holy Communion. Holy Father, sin is serious business. It's nothing to be taken lightly. As I stand next to this cross, I'm reminded that what took place on this cross was the judgment of our, on our Savior for the sins that Crawford Loritz committed. And so, Father, we cry out to you and thank you that you have provided for our sin. You, you have made a way and you've told us that when we do sin, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
That blood was not only good 2,000 years ago, but that blood continues to flow today. It washes us. It restores us. It renews us. It cleanses us. Thank you for your cleansing power. In Jesus' name, amen.